We're gonna go to a local gun store here and see how long it'll take us to buy a semi-automatic weapon. Communication. So we're at the store right now. We're about to walk in to buy a semi-automatic weapon. Let's see how long it takes. It is 11.40 a.m. All right, so here's our weapon. This is the time, 11.59. And I was still able to buy a semi-automatic weapon with a magazine, with 40 rounds, do a background check and walk out in 19 minutes. But there's no way in the world it ought to be this easy for somebody to walk out with a semi-automatic weapon. It just shouldn't be this easy. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Arm Scholar Podcast. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be reacting to a video that was put out by Patrick Bet David. And this is one of the first videos he put out as far as gun control uh, solutions that he believes would solve some of the issues we have in the US. Um, it, I think this is one of the first videos that he put out that kind of started um, the main talking points that he now uses to advocate for gun control things like mandatory waiting periods, uh, mandatory permits and training requirements, some other things that he talks about in this video. Also in this video, he goes and purchases a firearm. Um, so this is one of those videos that did really well on his channel and he got a lot of pushback on it. And so I just want to react to this video. And also I know that some people are saying maybe you're just picking on Patrick and it has nothing to do with that. I really enjoy his content. I enjoy his podcast and listen to it quite frequently. I just don't agree with him on this one specific viewpoint and as someone who watches his content, I just wanted to put out some counterpoints to some of the perspectives and some of the things that he's advocating for. So let's get into this video and let's see what he is advocating for. I cannot stand funerals. I can't stand funerals. I've been to many. Recently, I was at a funeral, and one of the things that bothers me with a funeral is when young people are dead or killed uh, and I witnessed the mom and dad when they get up and tell the story. I was in Miami and I saw this one very close friend of mine who got up. His father got up and spoke for 10 minutes and the entire time he was in tears. There are 17 parents that are going through that right now after what took place with this mass shooting. And typically I cannot stand bringing politics to value team and I cannot stand it. I don't like it, I dislike it. I have very strong opinions politically, but I didn't want to bring it up. However, this entire experience with what happened on Instagram, due to the respect I have for the followers, prompted me to want to actually go and do some due diligence to let you know how much this matter means to me. And so with that being said, here's a social experiment of what happened when we decided to go out there and buy some automatic weapon and seeing how long it would take for me to leave with one. We're gonna to go to a local gun store here and see how long it'll take us to buy a semi-automatic weapon. Communication. So we're at the store right now. We're about to walk. Now, one of the first things I want to stop and respond to is quite frequently in this video, you will see him refer to um, a lot of the firearms as semi-automatic firearm or a semi-automatic rifle or semi-automatic pistol. I think he just often says semi-automatic firearm. Now, I don't know if he's using that because he thinks it's a stronger word and makes it seem more dangerous than what it is. But as you guys know, a lot of you are um, very, you know, well-versed in firearms and you own a lot of firearms. Most firearms on the market right now are semi-automatic, unless you're buying something like a pump shotgun or you're buying something like a revolver or something like a bolt action rifle. Most firearms, and I would say a large percentage of the firearms on the market right now that someone would purchase that are in common use for lawful purposes are in fact semi-automatic. So 
not sure why he con consistently says that. I think he's trying to use it maybe as a, a buzzword to make it seem more dangerous than what it really is. And you'll see it pop up later also when he has some discussions about why he believes there needs to be waiting periods and things like that. Um, but I just find it interesting that he uses that terminology quite frequently in this video. Walking to buy a semi-automatic weapon. Let's see how long it takes. By the way, I'm in the city of Plano, Texas. Mario, can you give me your phone? I want to show exactly yeah. what time it is. It is Monday, March 26th. 11.40 a.m., okay? Terrible comparison, but let's go see how long it takes us to buy this semi-automatic weapon. And now, I'm walking out. Okay, Mari, can you open this? All right, so here's our weapon. Here's the magazine that, by the way, this magazine is not allowed in the state of California. This is a time, 11.59. So as you can see, we pulled up here. It was 11.40 a.m., March 26th, walked in. They were busy. There were five other customers in there. There was a transaction taking place where a guy was selling three other guns. Only two people were helping us out. And I was still able to buy a semi-automatic weapon with a magazine, with 40 rounds, do a background check, and walk out in 19 minutes. By the way, there's nothing, I have nothing against this uh, stores. These are businesses. They're running businesses. They're following the laws. There's nothing wrong with this business. I've bought guns from them before. Proudly, I buy guns from these guys before. But there's no way in the world it ought to be this easy for somebody to walk out with a semi-automatic weapon. It just shouldn't be this easy. 19 minutes, really? 19 minutes? You mean to tell me, by the way, this is the one that I actually bought. Here's the box. I think it's funny too that he bought probably one of the most basic ARs in the world, just the MMP Sport, uh, the modern sporting rifle. I mean, nothing against an MMP Sport, but I just think it's funny that that is always the rifle when you see these videos. That is the AR that they're going out and purchasing. Now, multiple times during that whole section, you saw him, you know, mention that he bought a magazine that's not legal in California. I don't know why that's really relevant. You know, you, the magazine restrictions in California are clearly unconstitutional. They're being challenged. They've been, you know, struck down originally by Judge Benitez in the Duncan decision. And then the uh, Supreme Court had Duncan in front of them. They remanded it in light of the Supreme Court 63 decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And so now it's back in the hands of Judge Benitez and we're waiting on a decision. But the fact that California prohibits magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, I'm not really sure why that's relevant for this specific video. Um, maybe he's advocating also for magazine capacity. Um, he doesn't specifically name that in a lot of his solutions, but it seems like they're that passing comment. Maybe he's also advocating, advocating for magazine bans, which I would actually love to have a conversation with him about that is, you know, does he actually believe in restricting magazine capacity? I think that would be interesting. Now, he talks about a lot, you know, and this is a perspective that he's pushed for quite often, is that he would like some sort of mandatory waiting period for someone to purchase a firearm that he does not believe um, that a person should be able to walk into a store and walk out with a firearm the same day. Now, specifically, he focuses quite a bit on a semi-automatic firearm. I don't know if his perspective is different. Like maybe he believes that someone should be able to walk in and buy a pump action shotgun or maybe a revolver and walk out with the same day. I don't know if he's saying that there should be a distinction there. Again, maybe that's something he needs to be pushed on, but why does he believe treating one class of firearms is different than the other? 
Um, why potentially would he say it's okay to walk in and out of a store with a specific type of firearm and not another? Now, like I said, you know, they throw out these terms like semi-automatic firearm, but again, those are some of the most commonly owned and used for lawful purpose firearms in the entire US. I mean, if you're talking about creating a mandatory waiting period for all semi-automatic firearms, I mean, that's millions and millions of firearms. That's almost every single modern uh, handgun. That's almost every single modern rifle, um, every single modern shotgun. I mean, it just covers a large percentage of firearms. So I'm curious if that's really what he's advocating for, or maybe he's advocating for some sort of distinction. Or is it just all firearms? Does he believe that there should be a mandatory waiting period for all firearms? Now, the counterpoint, the legal counterpoint to that, under the Supreme Court's decision, now I know a lot of people say like, why do you focus so much on the Supreme Court? Well, the Supreme Court has outlined and has reviewed the Second Amendment and has reviewed our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and they have analyzed it looking at the text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment to interpret you know, what is that right? What is ingrained in our fundamental right to keep and bear arms? Now, again, I wanna reiterate that the Second Amendment in the Constitution does not grant any rights. Instead, it just simply says what the government cannot do to infringe on certain rights. Specifically, the Second Amendment is what we're talking about. So again, Second Amendment doesn't grant rights. It just says what the government cannot do. I personally believe that the Second Amendment is a fundamental human right. It is a God-given right. And so the Second Amendment just simply says what the government cannot do. Now, the Supreme Court has said in Bruin and Heller and McDonald and Caetano and all the other decisions, and again, the Supreme Court is the main authority when it comes to interpreting the Second Amendment in the text. The Supreme Court has said when you're looking at a government restriction like, for example, a mandatory waiting period, you have to look at the text of the Second Amendment, determine whether these are arms or conduct protected by the text of the Second Amendment, and if they are in that conduct, for example, like purchasing a semi-automatic handgun or rifle, if that is lawful conduct, which clearly you would say that purchasing a handgun and a rifle and bring it into your possession is lawful conduct protected by the text of the Second Amendment because it's your right to keep and bear arms. So that is conduct protected by the Second Amendment. Then the burden shifts to the government. For the government to put in place a restriction like a mandatory waiting period, they must then point to historical evidence dating back to 1791 that would justify that regulation. If they cannot show a historical precedent or a historical analog at the very least to justify that restriction, then it is invalid and cannot be put in place. When you look at waiting periods, is there a historical analog or historical evidence dating back to 1791 that justifies a waiting period? No, there is not. There are no historical laws that are wherever in place that said that the government at a federal level or a state level or even a very local level could require that you had to wait a period of time before taking possession of a firearm. There are no, there's nothing like that in place. Um, I believe maybe it was California that was the first ones even in recent history to put in place a mandatory waiting period. So it is a very new law that came onto the books. It is a new regulation that the government has put in place and does not have historical precedent. And that is something also that is now being challenged once again in the state of California. The semi-automatic weapon I just bought, here's the receipt of the weapon I just bought. It took me 90 minutes to buy this. You mean to tell me anybody out there in nearly 40 states can go and buy a semi-automatic weapon and come out for the most part in 19 minutes? See, I'm uncomfortable with that. And by the way, a lot of you that follow Valuetainment, you are capitalist, you're pro-business, right? So many of you are also Republican. I also have a big following of Democrats, and some of you could care less about politics. 
This is not a Democratic issue. This is not a Republican issue. This is an American issue. This is a real-life issue that we're facing. And I have some insight that I'm going to share with you that's maybe different than what you've heard on the news that I am using from the financial industry and the things that's used it in a secured, regulated financial industry that many people in this world can say, this makes sense, why not apply it? And keep this in mind, no matter what I talk about and no matter what reforms we do, no matter what it is, we can never prevent 100% of shootings, we cannot. We cannot prevent of the bad guy getting guns illegally. I remember being 17 years old, 16 years old in Glendale, California, one of my friends was buying now, I want to stop there. He openly admits that no amount of laws that you put in place will stop all crime, will stop all criminals. And yet he's still advocating for government regulation. I mean, all the points that he's going to put forward are government regulations that will not stop all crime, will not stop um, criminal conduct. Like he mentions, he, he you know openly admits that crime will still happen. And yet he's advocating for regulations that will impact law abiding people, because, again, law abiding citizens are only going to be the ones that follow these laws. It's not going to stop all these criminals. Um, most of the things that he advocates for here wouldn't stop a lot of these shootings that he's um, putting this video out in response to. A lot of the laws that are passed at a federal and state level would have never stopped any of the incidents that occurred. And yet they're still advocating for more and more gun laws. And it was kind of cool. We went to this place in Eagle Rock, and it was under a parking lot, which was dark. We pulled up to the guy. He opened up his trunk. He had 70, 80, 100 guns in his trunk, and it was all this sound. Which one do you want? This one's 75 bucks. This one's $200. You want this one? This is $300. And he got some bullets, and he bought the gun, and we left. I was 16, 17 years old. If the bad guy wants to get a gun, he can get a gun. But that still doesn't mean we shouldn't have a reform. So the stuff I'm going to talk about will have to do with background checks with training, with education, and some precaution measures that we can take. Because when you look at the data, here's what the numbers look like. Last year, we had 36,100 people that died due to a gun. Out of this 36,100, 21,300 was suicide, 11,000 was homicide. There are four items I want to address when it comes down to having a reform with the- Now, before he jumps into his four points, the statistics that he's pointing to are CDC statistics. These, the ones he's specifically referencing are a little bit older because this is an older video. Um, I believe now the CDC is saying like 50, 56,000 um, gun violence or, or gun related uh, deaths in any given single year, I believe 2022. Um, Again, with those statistics, a large majority of them are suicides, and then the rest are homicides. But even when you look at that bucket of homicides, that bucket of homicides tends to be largely um, caused because of gang and criminal activity. Um, it is not like just average people are engaging in um, homicides or or there is death related because just, you know, a child is finding a firearm or, or, you know, accidents or anything like that. It is largely and predominantly because of gang related and criminal activity. So, you, again, you have to understand the statistics because a lot of people like to throw those out there. And if you don't understand a lot of what's going on in those, um, they can be deceiving. So now he's going to jump into the four main points that he believes would solve all of these issues. And I'm just going to be honest with you. All four of these are gun control laws that have been put in place in various states like California. And so he's advocating for a national level uh, gun control. And again, all of these are gun control laws that, in my opinion, and I think a lot of you would agree, is fundamentally counterproductive and are fundamentally uh, a violation of our right to keep and bear arms. And the first item is background checks. 
Now, when it comes down to background checks, some are for it, some are against it, but I want to take a complete different approach with background checks. You see, I've been in the financial industry since the day before 9-11. I have my Series 7, 66, 31, 26 life and health insurance license. And the one thing that the life and health insurance, com life insurance companies do, right, is the following. When you buy a policy from a life insurance company, so as all of you are aware, we already have background checks. When you purchase a firearm from an FFL, you have to fill out your 4473. It goes to the NICS system. The FBI runs your background check. What he's advocating for here, I mean, I don't think he tries to say that there are no such thing as background checks. I think he admits that there are background checks, but he believes that some of the policies in the insurance industry are maybe more comprehensive than what the FBI runs as far as background checks. Find that kind of strange, and I don't believe that to be true, uh, but that's what he's advocating for. He believes that adding on some additional requirements to the FBI's background checks will somehow solve all of these issues. And we all know that that's not gonna stop anything because a lot of these criminals are not purchasing from FFLs. They're not going through the background check process. All of them aren't even purchasing them through private party transactions. They're not building these so-called scary ghost guns. Most of the firearms that are found at crime scenes are actually stolen firearms that then have their serial numbers scratched off them or, or are defaced in some way. And that is a large majority of the firearms that are found at crime scenes. So a lot of this is not gonna solve really anything in my opinion, um, but he is advocating for some sort of more, I guess in his belief, comprehensive background check system, utilizing some um, strategies in the insurance industry. And then he also goes on to talk about um, some sort of prescription background check, which we'll cover that when he talks about it. Life insurance companies do multiple tests. I'm going to cover five of them. Before they do a blood test and send a phlebotomist to you or do an EKG, which costs them a little bit more money, they'll do three tests that doesn't require them to come to you. One of them is an MVR, which is about your driving record. The other one is a script check, and the last one is a background check. Let me address the script check, why this is so important. The script check allows these life insurance companies to do is they find out what drugs, what medication customers are currently taking. For instance, you can find out if someone's taking Depakote, which is a medication for people that are struggling with bipolar disorder, or Abilify, or Prozac, or Zoloft, or Paxil. You find those things out. Now, keep this in mind. I'm not judging anybody that's going through this. I run a big company, and we have a lot of people that struggle with a lot of these different challenges, especially today with all the pressures we have with social media. But does that mean I want them having access to a handgun, a shotgun, let alone a semi-automatic weapon? I don't. Look, it's like saying if somebody drinks and they have that in their body, do you want them driving in the cars, driving in the streets? I don't. I know you don't either. So the same way life insurance companies minimize their risk of who they give a half a million dollar life insurance policy to or million dollar life insurance policy to, we ought to minimize the risk of who we allow to buy a gun. It shouldn't just be a background check, which we currently do. It should be more than a background check and add a script check, which is $14.95, that allows us to find out what medication the folks are using before they buy one of these guns. It's actually interesting because I will give Patrick He's ahead of his time, so this video is a little bit older, and the whole prescription check and the mental health check was something that was not being floated around at this time when he put out this video, but now it has definitely become one of the main talking points for the anti-gunners and the, the gun control advocates. Um, they are heavily pushing, um, potentially at a federal level, for some sort of check where if you are on prescriptions um, in a wide variety of prescriptions, if you have been prescribed them at all, not even if you're taking them, if you've ever been prescribed them, then you will become a prohibited person. You will not be able to purchase or possess firearms. 
I don't have to tell you how dangerous that is. Now, one of the, the, the fundamental things I think that is different between me and Patrick on the viewpoint of the Second Amendment is I have zero faith in giving the federal government or a state government or whatever government agency the authority to determine who is capable of exercising their fundamental rights and who isn't. What Patrick is advocating for is allowing the government to determine who can exercise their right to keep and bear arms based on what prescriptions they are on. So here he's advocating for, okay, we're going to run a prescription check. And so the government is going to get to run that check and they're going to get to determine what prescriptions you're on will then disqualify you from exercising your fundamental rights. That is, could not be a bigger infringement on the Second Amendment that I've, I've really ever heard of. And again, this is something that they've been pushing for at a federal level. It's something that's popped up now and they really want to push for. Um, and again, I'm just against that violates so many fundamental rights. And I am adamantly opposed to giving the government that type of authority to determine just a broad category of people who can no longer exercise rights because they're on prescription drugs or have been prescribed them. Number two is waiting period. You just saw the video earlier, the social experiment that took me 90 minutes to walk out with this. Keep this in mind. Nearly 40 states do not have a waiting period. 10 of them do. You got California, 30 days, Connecticut, D.C., Hawaii, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, Jersey, New York, and Carolina. They have a waiting period. Now, why is a waiting period? So I want to correct him on one point. Now, he could be getting something wrong or whoever gave him the research in this regard could have just got it wrong and he got bad information. California does not have a 30 day waiting period. We have a 10 day waiting period for you to purchase uh, firearms and come into possession of them. Now, maybe where they got the 30 day period from is that California has an additional law in the book. So not only do we have the 10 day waiting period where if you walk into an FFL and want to purchase a handgun, you know, it's put in jail for 10 days. You can't come into possession of it. On top of that, we have a one in 30 law in the state of California where you can only purchase one semi-automatic handgun or semi-automatic centerfire rifle in any 30 day period. So California has actually doubled up their technically waiting periods. We have a 10 day waiting period and then also a one in 30 law. Now, again, California is a perfect test tube to see if these gun, you know, these radical gun control laws have actually solved any of the criminal conduct. Has it reduced so-called gun violence in the state? No, it hasn't. California is some of the worst crime rates out of any state in the entire U.S. I mean, we see what's happening in San Francisco and L.A. Um, you know, there's a lot of other things that also go into that because we are not um, actually putting people in jail. We're not convicting, you know, the DAs are not convicting people when they're are committing crimes. Uh, we're not keeping people in prisons. We're downgrading people from level fours to level threes. We're closing prisons. So California just comprehensively is not actually doing what they're supposed to do. But on top of that, these gun control laws that they keep passing, keep putting in place, like the 10 day waiting period, like the one in 30 law have not actually reduced crimes. So I just wanted to correct Patrick on that regard. California doesn't have a 30 day waiting period, probably in the sense that he's talking about. We have a one in 30 law. We do have a 10 day waiting period, though. Period necessary. Do you remember earlier when I said 36,000 people died from a gun and 11,000 were homicide, murder, but 21,300 were suicide? Do you remember that? See, the reason why this is important for suicide is if I'm in the heat of the moment and I'm so emotional and I'm done with my life, a divorce, a cheating, Somebody broke my heart. I got fired. I lost gambling bet in Vegas. I'm suicidal. American Journal of Public Health shows that states with waiting period laws 
have 51% fewer firearm suicides and a 27% lower overall suicide rate that states without such laws have. Now, how many times have you been ticked off and you didn't do something dumb because a day went by, six hours went by, three hours went by, your emotions were gone, right? These are the moments that we can minimize the number of 21,000 because this isn't just murder. A lot, a lot more are suicides than it's murder. We have to also work on that aspect as well with the medication as well as with the waiting period. Now, let me so it's interesting. He's advocating for national waiting periods to potentially reduce suicides. Now, I'm all for reducing suicides. I would say I don't necessarily trust the uh, public health journal. We've seen quite often that they have skewed their statistics. I'm not sure where they're getting this 56% reduction in, in suicide rates because of a waiting period. Um, I have not seen any of those statistics, especially in regards to states like California who have these comprehensive gun control 10-day waiting period, one in 30 laws. Um, and it's interesting because in California put forward that public interest for them to originally pass their 10-day waiting period. Now, after the 10-day waiting period, they then introduced the 1 in 30 law. And again, the public interest was that the 10-day waiting period did not solve any of those, you know, these very things that Patrick is saying would be resolved. Um, you know, the 10-day cooling off period was not enough. Then we needed the 1 in 30 law to further uh, reduce these types of incidents. So I don't, I mean, I would have to look specifically into this journal public health article. It's probably outdated at this point. Um, to see if, you know, how they actually ran this specific statistic on the 56% reduction of suicides. But I would say that what we've seen states do in response to this is they've said that they've actually have not resolved anything. So, you know, the 10 day waiting periods or these mandatory purchasing and possession waiting periods don't solve anything. So then they try to double up with something like a one in 30. Let me tell you about point number three, the ease of buying a gun, meaning how difficult is it to buy a gun? So 36 out of 50 states in America, we don't need a permit, a license, or registration to go purchase a gun. You simply go in, you say, I wanna buy a gun, you give them your driver's license, you answer 10 questions, and you walk out with a gun, semi-automatic weapon, or your, hand, your shotgun, right? I have a challenge with that, here's why. Why is it that it's so seamless for you and I to walk out with a gun, and we don't need a license, a registration, or permit, or any training or education, but if I wanna go get a driver's license, I need to go take a class. You know how they say student driver on the back of the car? I have to go drive with somebody that knows what they're doing, right? Then I come back, I do a Q&A test, it's a test, okay? Then I go do a driving test, then I get a driver's license. Why do we do that? Because we wanna make sure people are safe. Well, I would say because the Second Amendment and your right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental enumerated right, whereas your ability to drive a vehicle um, maybe in some ways an attenu attenuated fundamental right to travel, but it is not a fundamental enumerated right like the Second Amendment that says shall not be infringed. So, you know, that is kind of the one of the most basic responses. Now, let's kind of look more at the legal uh, response to that. And this is perfect. You know, he's he's advocating for some sort of mandatory training, some sort of mandatory permitting system. Um, and again, this is something that was specifically addressed in Bruin. Bruin had to do with a concealed carry permit, um, you know, not the same as purchasing a firearm. But they did talk a bit about a little bit of how this would apply to other types of Second Amendment situations. So in California, they are in New York. They have the proper cause standard. So in New York, the Bruin challenge was to the CCW requirement in the state of New York where you had to have proper cause, um, you had to get a permit, you had to go through training and do all these things to get a permit. It was a May issue scheme, uh, but really New York 
very rarely issued those permits. And that was challenged up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court found, you know, rejected public interest arguments, a lot of public interest arguments that Patrick is making here. Um, they said public interest arguments were no longer valid. When you are looking at these types of governmental restrictions, like mandatory permitting systems, you have to look at the text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment. So they found that a permitting system like a May issue scheme New York had in place for concealed carry permits for you to carry concealed were invalid under the Second Amendment. Now, I know there maybe there's anti-gun people or anti-gun scholars who are watching this video and they would say, well, they did say that shall issue could be potentially possible. Yes, they said shall issue could potentially be possible. Um, and shall issue schemes are essentially if you meet objective standards, then the state or the government would have to issue your your concealed carry permit. And there are a lot of states um, within the U.S. who have shall issue schemes and shall issue is supposed to be the baseline now. But you've seen a lot of states actually move towards constitutional or permitless carry. So the Supreme Court did talk a little bit about shall issue schemes. But what you've seen actually happen now, I believe, for example, in Washington, where they're saying you have to have now a permit to purchase a mandatory permit to purchase, and they're trying to use the Bruin analysis as a legal backing for shall issue permit to purchase schemes, saying that as long as they apply these objective standards, um, you, then you, you know, it's potentially lawful under the Second Amendment. Now, that is not actually what, and you know, the language that they're pulling out there is from Kavanaugh's concurrence. It's not even from the majority opinion, it's from Kavanaugh's concurrence. So it's more dictum than anything. Um, but what Kavanaugh was saying is that, yeah, they're not saying anything in regards to shall issue regimes, that shall issue regimes are still potentially lawful, but shall issue regimes could also be so abusive that they really operate as may issue and those would run afoul of the Second Amendment. So it's not perfect to just say that, oh, the Supreme Court, even under Bruin, said that potentially these objective permitting schemes would be lawful. They did not say that. You know, again, that was a concurrence from Kavanaugh. It's unfortunate language that he included in there. I don't like that he included that language in there. But now you've been you've seen that kind of pop up now in a lot of these lawsuits and new laws like in Washington, where they're trying to put in these mandatory permit to purchase schemes. Again, what Patrick is advocating for and, and the test in Heller to see if a mandatory purchase to permit scheme would be again to look at the history of the Second Amendment to see if there was any historical analogs that support that type of mandatory purchase to purchase scheme. Well, why are we not doing the same thing with guns? Why are we not doing that? You see, when it comes on to licenses, real estate license, insurance license, all these licenses, there are some education that you need to do. In my industry, insurance license in some states, you need to do a certain amount of hours to get your license, right? There's an education being done for it. What if we did this, the same thing? Also an interesting counterpoint to that that I think Patrick is overlooking. We do have an equivalent to that. It's called the federal firearms license. It's not like gun stores are just selling these willy nilly to people. Under federal law, they have these federal firearms licenses. They are licensed stores that are complying with federal law to sell these firearms. They are going through all the hoops that the ATF and the federal government has put in place for them to lawfully sell firearms. So it's not like there is no um, federal structure or no licensing scheme that is in place, but what Patrick really is doing, he's kind of drawing a false equivalent, in my opinion. He's saying, oh, I have a license to sell. You know, there are gun stores that have a license to sell. What the equivalent would be is if you had to have to have a license or a permit to purchase insurance. That is what he's wanting to put on the individual. He's trying to put a permit and a mandatory requirement on the individual and the, the store to engage in this transaction. I would bet you he would be very much against 
a federal requirement being put in place where individuals would have to go through a licensing structure and get a mandatory permit before they could purchase some sort of insurance policy from him and his company. I bet you he would be against that. And that is more of a one-to-one -one equivalent of what he's advocating for. Thing with guns, meaning if somebody wanted to buy a long rifle or a gun, number one, we did background checks and script check, which is what we talked about earlier. Number two, there's an eight hour crash course that somebody needs to go sit down and they can find that. Here's this, here's that, here's this. Three, there's a Q and A test that you have to answer. Four, there's a live test. What if there was a live test? And number five, continuing education every two years that you need to do. And if you don't do that, there's a registration part that allows you not to sell your gun Ooh, to somebody else because you do not have a license. Just like if I don't renew my real estate license, my insurance license or my securities license, I cannot go sell another policy. That so there you heard him in passing almost advocate for a federal registration process where you have a federal permit um, where that you have to go through to be able to purchase firearms, put you, put you on a registry so that if you don't renew and go through these mandatory requirements, um, then you're flagged in the system and you potentially can't purchase or sell going forward. So, you know, we have federal laws in place that directly say that the federal government cannot have a firearms registry. You know, maybe he's trying to get through this through a backdoor where it's, you know, not a federal firearms registry or of gun ownership, but it just of gun owners who are registered beforehand to then purchase or sell firearms. Um, you know, kind of to me, it just seems like a backdoor way to put in place a similar type of federal registry. And as we all know, not only registries invalid um, should never be put in place is directly against what the founders would have believed the Second Amendment should, you know, the, the founders would have never been for the overarching federal government having in place a registry that knew um, every single individual that had firearms. It would be absurd to think that the founders would advocate for that type of system, but that's almost what he's advocating for here. And then he's wanting to put in place other types of restrictions, mandatory training requirements, eight hour training requirements. And again, you're going to leave power to the federal government to determine the type of standards that someone has to meet to exercise these rights. Then they're going to set in place mandatory fees. Um, and again, this a lot of these things, too, what they don't look at as far as gun control is it almost pushes out broad classes of Americans. There are people in the U.S., who don't have time to take off from work for an eight hour mandatory eight hour training course to do all this training, to pay all these mandatory government fees. Um, and again, for example, in California, we have all these CCW permitting schemes, these farm safety certificates, training requirements, um, all these things that we have to put in place, the mandatory waiting periods, the background checks, all these additional things that California's put in place costs money and it prices people out of exercising their right to keep and bear arms. And so a lot of times they're overlooking of how this will actually impact people of lower socioeconomic means. And for whatever reason, they overlook that. That allows people to be updated with the new laws that are coming out. Now, if somebody wants to buy a semi-automatic weapon, semi-automatic weapon, different than a gun, different than a shotgun, you got to do all of the above that we talked about. On top of that, we do a 40-hour crash course that somebody can go out there and learn. So a mandatory background check requirement uh, on top of the background check that you already have to do, plus script checks, um, and then a Q&A, a live test. You have to do continuing education. So you're going to have to pay, you know, to continue your education, to renew it. And then a 40-hour mandatory 40-hour crash course. I don't know about you, but I don't have time to do a government-mandated 40-hour crash course. Um, 
I am more than capable as a law-abiding individual to train on my own means to engage in the conduct, the lawful Second Amendment conduct to become trained, um, but I'm not going to do a government-mandated 40-hour crash course before I can purchase a firearm. That is ridiculous. And so, again, I am not against by any means training. I think people should absolutely be trained. I think you should take it upon yourself to be as proficient with firearms as you possibly can be. I do that myself every single year. I do multiple training courses. Um, you know, I've done USCCA's training courses this year. I'm going to be doing stuff with um, Manzano Tactical, I think in October. And then in, on, in December, I'm doing two different courses with Achilles Seal Tactical. So I do training, you know, I pay a lot of money, even out of my own pocket, um, to do high level training, to be as proficient as I possibly can be with firearms. What I am, and I'm, I'm not against that, absolutely, I think you should invest in your training. What I'm against is the federal government mandating as a condition precedent, federally mandated training before you can purchase and possess and exercise your right to keep and bear arms. That is not the power that you want to give to the government. You do not want to give power to the government to say that you you they can dictate the type of training and the type of courses and the amount of payments and the things that you need to do before you can engage in your right to keep and bear arms. That is what I'm against. I'm not against training. I think absolutely people should do training on their own. I'm against training as a condition precedent to you exercising your right to keep and bear arms because that does violate the Second Amendment. And outside of just all the regular testing, maybe it's a different kind of a testing that we do. Why is that so important? Because it shouldn't be that easy for somebody to just go out there and buy one of these. It should not be. People need to be trained. We need to be educated. And many people out there that are watching this who own one of these are saying, honestly, I'm okay with that. I wouldn't mind learning as well. For those of you that know what it is, you grew up with a dad that had all these different guns and he taught you in your backfield and all this other stuff. That's not the case with everybody. There are a lot of people that have no idea. To continue on the same topic of the ease of buying a gun, the other item we have to address is the following thing, which is universal background checks. Now, what do I mean by universal background checks? Because we kind of covered on the first one, so what are you bringing it up again? Here's why I'm bringing it up in this area. See, 78% of people that buy a gun or a shotgun or some automatic weapon, they buy from a licensed dealer. It's a name, 78%, but 22% buy it private, which means I just say, here's $300, I buy it and I walk away. That 22% is way too many people to not need to have a background check done. I don't know who this person is that's buying that gun. We need a 100% universal background check to take place because you don't know who that person is buying the gun from this other person that doesn't have to go through a background check. Everybody that transfers the gun to another person, they need to go through a background check. Similar to when you buy a car. When you buy a car from somebody else, you need to go to the DMV and get the new VIN number, registration, pink slip, so the other person takes ownership of the car and the liability and the responsibilities, boom, no problem. Now we know that this gun is owned by this new owner. We need to do the same thing when it comes down to guns as well as cars. And I, again, it just frustrates me. They always draw this equivalent to firearms and your ability to drive. I don't know why they do that, but they think that that is some um, way to get around just advocating for gun control. Um, but it's interesting because, again, I think he was a little bit ahead of its time as far as advocating for gun control. Maybe the gun controllers took their talking points from Patrick. Um, but what we've seen recently now after the passing of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act is we've now seen that the ATF is intending to introduce a new rule. Now, what is that new rule? I've done a video on it. Um, I've, I've, you know, if you want to watch that, I have it here on my channel. The new rule that the ATF is planning to put on place is expanding on some of the language 
um, in the Bipartisan Safe Communities Act, which changed some language as far as who is engaged in the business of dealing firearms. They are now going to try to close what they believe is this so-called loophole of private party transactions. Um, they're going to try to do this through multiple means. One, they're going to target FFLs, where they're going to try to uh, you know, target FFLs more aggressively than they're going to try to target um, people who are selling firearms, you know, like he's talking about private party transactions, where they're potentially going to lower the number of firearms that an individual can sell in any given year um, before they are considered to be engaged in the business of dealing firearms for a profit to where they would then need an FFL license to sell firearms going forward. That is all because of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was passed in response to Uvalde. Um, Patrick has talked about that. Um, it's interesting because none of these laws that now are, are getting put in place through the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act or these ATF new rules would have stopped any of those incidents. But again, they're just using them as a jumping, jumping off point to put in place more federal restrictions, more federal laws um, to attack the law-abiding citizens' right to keep and bear arms because they don't, in my opinion, they don't really care about stopping in this criminal conduct. They just don't want the people, us law-abiding people to also have firearms. They don't want criminals to have firearms and they also don't want you to have firearms. And it's a lot easier to go after law-abiding people than actually to solve the problem, which is the criminal. Point number four is the age of buying a gun. You see in America today, if you and I wanted to have a shot of this Johnny Walker double black, we need to be 21 years old. But in America today, if you wanna buy this semi-automatic weapon, AR-15, you only need to be 18 years old. You mean to tell me today, 1.6 million high school students today, according to Washington Post, can buy one of these? And we're more afraid as citizens of this than this? Really? We're more worried about this than this? That makes no sense. I don't see the logic behind that. And this is why I say I don't see any logic behind that. This handgun, I have to be 21 years old to buy it. These have to be 18. I think we can wait three more years. This is why I think we can wait three more. So it's interesting. He's advocated multiple times in videos that I've seen where he wants to increase the age restrictions for purchasing. Um, it's always he talks about like, I don't see how that's logical or like, I don't see the logic behind you being able to purchase a semi-automatic rifle um, and not being able to purchase alcohol. I mean, I personally, I think if you're considered an adult, you're an adult. If our if our society says you are an adult that you can enter into contracts, you can get married, you can you know, drive a vehicle, you can do go to war, die for your country, you can do all these things and we consider you to be an adult. I think we should treat people as an adult. I personally don't really have an issue with if we lowered the age of purchasing alcohol to 18 years old. And then just looking at the legal context as far as individuals of certain age groups being able to purchase firearms, textually and historically, if you look at the Second Amendment, the militia was comprised of very young men, you know, men much younger. You had, you had the Militia Act, um, you know, that has specific age groups as well. So there were men of much younger ages than 18, 20 year olds who historically and textually had the ability to keep and bear arms and were often obligated and required under law to be armed and to have firearms ready and capable. So if they were called to serve in the militia, they had firearms to serve in the militia. So historically and textually, if you look at the Second Amendment, there is plenty of historical and legal precedent to support someone 18 to 20 year olds being able to purchase and possess firearms, all types of firearms, and potentially even younger. If any part of this prompted this much of influence for you to go out there and research 
and say, wow, this just made my argument stronger, or man, my argument had some leaks here and it made it better, that was the purpose of this video, if it does. So I, I appreciate that. I think, um, again, in no way, I, I really enjoy Patrick's you know podcast and his show. I listen to it quite frequently. Um, I just don't agree with him on this viewpoint. I've heard these talking points be put forward quite a bit by him in multiple videos. He still says it. Um, he said it very recently also. He's advocated for these viewpoints. I just don't agree with him. And the whole point of this is was to have a conversation and maybe present some counterpoints to um, some of these things that Patrick is advocating for. In no way am I trying to attack him. Um, it was just me, like he said in this video, wanting to have a discussion um, about some of those viewpoints that he's putting forward. You know, I'm sure my arguments aren't perfect either. You know, I mess up stuff here and there as well. Um, I'm always trying to better myself and better my advocacy for the Second Amendment. So in no way am I perfect either. So again, those are just my responses to this video from Patrick Bat David, you know, of him going into a gun store, 19 minutes purchasing a an MMP sport and walking out same day with it. And then him advocating for some of the four main uh, gun control things that he thinks would solve some of these solutions, um, including increasing the age restrictions, mandatory waiting periods, enhanced background checks, as far as also looking into medications and things of that nature. So again, let me know what you guys think down in the comment section, share this around. If you somehow maybe have a connection with Patrick, share this to him. I, um, in no way am I saying like, I want to go on this podcast and have a conversation with him, but I think it is maybe like he said, if he wanted some counterpoints to some of the things he's presenting. These are some counterpoints from someone who's on the uh, firearm side, on the Second Amendment advocacy side, and just some um, legal understanding of case law and constitutional law, and you know some counterpoints to some of the things that he's presenting, and also me just being tuned in with the firearms community, uh, some of the counterpoints we would have to things that he's advocating for, and also um, some counterpoints based on that these laws have been in place in states like California that I live in, and I've seen the uh, practical application of some of these things and knowing that they don't really work in the way that he's saying that they will. So again, let me know what you guys think down in the comment section. If you like this podcast and you like this type of content, let me know down in the comment section. Make sure you like, comment, subscribe, um, hit that notification bell, share these videos. All those things help to directly impact these videos, impact this channel, and helping me to reach and educate more people than I could ever do on my own. As always, thank you everybody who likes, comments, subscribes, who hits the notification bell, shares these videos. You guys are helping to grow the podcast, hoping to grow the channel, and I cannot thank you guys enough. So as always, thank you all for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And don't forget this nation was built by Arm Scholars, and this nation will be maintained by Arm Scholars.